When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The Telegraph, the Telegraph. podcasts. Hello, everyone. Before we begin, a reminder that we're going to bring you a daily podcast this week as we look forward to the end of the Premier League season. What follows is our normal Monday show with all of the bells and whistles you've come to expect. Tomorrow on Tuesday, we'll have the first ever audio football club, Football Phone Out. You're familiar with the concept of a football phone in. This is the reverse of that. We'll be ringing our reporters around the country and Jamie Carragher to get their thoughts. On Wednesday, we'll have an interview with the presenter, comedian and Nottingham Forest obsessive Matt Ford. On Thursday, we'll have a preview show looking ahead to the weekend with Sam Wallace here with me in the audio recording facility. And on Friday, another first for Audio Football Club, a women's football podcast. Looking forward to the World Cup this summer. As ever, we welcome your thoughts about what we've done this year, what you want more of next year, what you want less of next year, and what you think of this slew of shows building up to the end of the Premier League season. The email address is afcpodcast at telegraph.co.uk. Bring me my theme tune. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. With the top four and relegation places sorted, the only thing left to be decided on the final day is the small matter of who will be Premier League champions. Liverpool overcome a surprisingly motivated Newcastle side, and today we look ahead to Manchester City versus Leicester. This farewell to Cardiff and Neil Warnock who gave us one last bit of on-pitch nonsense, an almost admirable collapse for Spurs at Bournemouth, then more premature beach-dwelling rubbish from Arsenal and Manchester United. Plus the Turin derby, an incredible underdog story brewing in Spain and the things in football which make us all feel 200 years old. Let's take you now into the audio recording facility where I'm joined, as ever, by JJ Bull. What's happening, JJ? Hello, Tom. There's lots of football. Yes. Uh, Yes. The season's almost over. It's a bit sad because I think it's really great. I don't know why everyone keeps slagging it off saying it's rubbish. (laughs) Who's saying that? (laughs) Some people. Oh. You know, they're saying like, oh, it's the worst title race ever. And I think it's great. Good. Good. Yeah. No cynicism here. Sitting to JJ Ball's right. It is our friend Mina Rizuki. How are you, Mina? Good. I didn't know that it was going to finish next week. It's all too soon. Really? Yeah, I thought, you know, we still have another, like, 14 weeks in, like, the other other leagues. Yeah, well, you know, England, we we hate messing around. We get things done. Yeah. Yeah. There's two weeks left in Scotland, that helps. Is there? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Okay, I'll watch Aberdeen next week then. Yeah, keep an eye on the major European leagues, like Scotland. (laughs) Joining us, completing our lineup, it is the boy wonder, Sam Dean. How are you, Sam? I'm very well. Thank you for having me back. I, I, I feel like... 
the season's still got a, f- a few weeks left. You've got the Europa League final in Baku, the big mm-hmm. one. Yep. Then you've got the Nations League going on straight away. I love that you mentioned that and not the Champions Oh no, it's all about Baku. It's all about the Europa. <laughs> I think there's like a, Love the Europa. like an eight-week break between the end of the season and the Champions League final. Yeah, that's what mm. I think too. It's weird. Oh, Words. there's also FA Cup. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty more to go. Plenty more to go and plenty to discuss. Let's start with the Premier League title race. I must admit, JJ, I've been not massively enthused by this title race, but finally it felt really, really exciting to me this weekend as Liverpool came through just about against Newcastle. Sam, you took me to task actually a few weeks ago when I said uh, that this might be Liverpool's last chance for a while uh, to win the league. I think you're probably right, actually. And uh, So, 1-0 to you. I, this game, to me, showed me that Liverpool have got so much character and determination. If it isn't to be for them this year, do we expect it's going to be much the same from them next year? I think there's every reason to believe they should be as good, if not better, next year. I think if you look at their their team now, you can see obvious areas of improvement within the players they've got. That's people like Joe Gomez, I think, will be... He hopefully won't get injured next year, will be better next year and be a more obvious partner for Van Dijk. Trent Alexander-Arnold will be better, more experienced next year. You've got players like Jordan Shakiri who will, I think, only improve having had a year there and Naby Keita as well. So I think Liverpool aren't going to spend a huge amount of money this summer, but I think there's every reason to believe they will be just as good a force next year as they are this year. And I think you're right, this, this win, I think, showed that they are... They're riding this wave. Klopp used the word destiny afterwards, and there's a sense of emotion and a sense of um, sort of like fate to it. I think now, and the fact that they've had so many of these late winners. I mean, I counted them up, and I think you can you can say generously they've had nine games this season where they've won in dramatic late circumstances where they showed like sort of genuine character. One of those sort of title-winning moments that you'd expect. Obviously, the issue is they're playing against City, but there's enough belief and momentum in this team now, I think, that even if they don't get it, I think Klopp's got enough confidence, I think, to to build on this and and go again next year, absolutely. It does feel like even if it doesn't go for them, even if they somehow mess it up at home to Wolves next weekend, uh, they've dispelled the notion that they're too fragile, that they're in some way too emotional. What, What did you make of the performance and the result on Saturday, Mina? It's strange because when I watched Liverpool against Everton, um, at that time we were talking about whether or not they were emotionally fragile and whether or not they were feeling the pressure. And I thought that that game was an example of the fact that they were feeling the pressure and they weren't rising to the occasion as they should have. Um, And I was quite harsh on them at that time because I was like, these are the kind of games in which you judge teams and and you judge to see how far they can go and and how far they've got to go. And actually since then... They've been amazing and they're doing this, they're, they're, you know, they're winning these matches every single match, always throwing everything in there. They look fit, they look mentally capable, they look physically capable. And this is despite the fact that they're also exerting themselves in the Champions League. So on that occasion, you have nothing but to congratulate them for all of these efforts because it's not like not even once have they looked like they're a team that just really cannot handle the pressure or are too tired or mentally exhausted to even try, which you have actually at times seen with City. So I think on that occasion, you have nothing but to applaud them for. Having said that, and all when we're talking about next season, I do think that if this is a team that does want to become the next big thing in the way that City has already become, there is, I think there needs to be investments made on that mid, in that midfield. Um I think that you saw that for all their beauty and their wonderful strategies in in, in football and how attacking they can be, the level of, uh, let's just say when you compare them to the likes of Barcelona, there's still something missing there. Um, 
Oh, Sam looks like he wants to come in. Just which 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 player of the three would you want to improve on? Because you've got obviously Fabinho, who I don't think you're going to improve on as a holding midfielder. Cater, they've put a lot of expectation on to be the more creative going forward. And then you've got Henderson slash Milner slash Wijnaldum as the sort of energetic box-to-box shuttle. I think they need somebody like a Coutinho. And I don't think Shakiri is that. Um, I, I think that... Listen, Cater's been only good now. He didn't exactly have the start of the season that made you sort of fall off your chair and think, my God, we found our next midfielder. Um, you know, Henderson is good. They're all good. They're all a seven or an eight out of ten. But there aren't, they're not Busquets or Modric or Xabi. Or Lon, you know, they're not mm. the type of quality that perhaps ensures that there's a constant supply to the forward line. And we saw that on so many occasions. It, for example, against Everton. That's, you needed that guy who afforded them something going forward in terms of creativity. And I do think that while last season they coped with that Coutinho because of their style of play, when they've started to become a little bit more composed and a little quieter on this occasion, this season, it looks like that Coutinho guy is missing. Could that not be Oxlade-Chamberlain? I mean, I, it could. I, <laughs> you don't sound convinced. <laughs> no, really, I... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, everything else just seems so perfect. When you have Virgil van Dijk, I think the two fullbacks are amazing, you know. I do think that you need an alternative in the forward line, somebody that can do something, an alternative to Firmino. Um, uh, you're nodding, Sam, to that one. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, I think that's the main, more than midfield for me. I think that's the main area of shortcoming in the team. That when they've not got Firmino, I mean, Sturridge didn't look the part on, on Saturday night. I mean, I know he's had not had much game time, but he doesn't look the part. And Origi's never really been good enough. And you can't rely on Mane, Salah and Firmino being fit the whole time. They've been quite lucky this year that Salah and Mane have Mm. generally avoided injuries. That's one of the things. They've not had injuries really this season. They've been so lucky. Mm. You look at the Man City loss to Brona and they've had other players missing for a long time, but they're still on top of them. Is it luck though? Because something Andy Robertson said after the game was that he feels and and the team feel that they're stronger and they're fitter than the teams they come up against. Do you think that's... Have you seen that from Liverpool? Do do they... Can they do we look, ever like, see that really from, from where we look at things? I mean, they do look they do, they do look really fit, um, and they just run and run and run and run forever and ever, and they don't seem to be showing signs of tiredness even now, going right into the very end of the season. And they've got Barca, you know, and they were working hard against um, Newcastle. But it's, it's I agree with Mina about uh, the squad depth. If they buy anyone in the summer, bring anyone in or promote anyone from youth, it's got to be someone who is another level above the players they already have because mm. the players they have are already very good but you don't really have these players like Luka Modric that float around and when they do they tend to go to Real Madrid or Barcelona like Frankie de Jong's off to Barcelona he's one of the best options you'd get in the entire world I'd say Von de Beek would be amazing Von de Beek but Von de Beek's good but he's probably great within that Ajax team and that Ajax mm. system I don't know if he's going to be great anywhere else he goes if he goes to like Everton or Spurs the kind of team I think he would go to uh, I don't think he'd end up looking that good. It's like some players look very good within certain clubs and systems because it suits them perfectly. But when you put them into another one and uh, like a counter-attacking team rather than one that holds the ball, then suddenly they have to play in a different way and it doesn't suit them. I think Liverpool need to have uh, they need to spend big on maybe one or two and just mm. take it to another. Try and take that next level. But I I don't know what's going to happen this next week. But they'll still be remembered. This Liverpool team is one of the best. Premier League teams have got you'll, you'll remember them in the same way not as, as revered as like Holland 74 but in the same way you'll talk about this Liverpool team Certainly being a great one Newcastle 95-96 are a team that I think uh, springs to mind yeah. here um, we're recording before Klopp speaks on Monday uh, where we're expecting to find out more about Salah but 
On the injury to Salah, is it a bit strange that goalkeepers are allowed to charge out of goal in that way? It, when you see the height of Dubravka, where he, I mean, he catches Salah in his head, it, it, it's never really occurred to me as odd because this is what, we, what we've always known. But it, it, it seems so dangerous when you see goalkeepers charge out like that, and it's inevitable that people, you know, sometimes suffer injuries, isn't it? That um, like hilarious dad joke about keepers you have to be mad to be a goalkeeper I think there's a lot of truth to it whenever you play at any level the one that's in goal has to be a bit mad because if you're charging out you know you can get absolutely clattered because you you're quite vulnerable having to stretch up to reach for a ball and try and punch it or something like that and although his hips caught Salah he has to kind of come out and make himself big while he's doing it or he'll get hurt and I mean it's not as they saw Alan McGregor for Rangers get sent off because he kicked someone in the back. <laughs> and then claimed he'd hurt his foot. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of aggression you don't want and don't need, but he's mental. And you've got um, players like uh, Dubravka yesterday, he just has to come out and do that. It's weird that they do get away with it's, a lot of stuff in the box. But. It's a strange fact of footballing life that an outfield player can't touch a goalkeeper when they try and challenge for a ball. Yeah. But a goalkeeper can nearly kill an outfield player to get a ball and it's fine <laughs> you can just sort of charge your whole throw your whole body in the way and punch the ball away but it and it's, it's not a dangerous issue. role to play oh yeah like I was watching Kepper as well pull off a magnificent save in, in the game against Watford and it just looked like his head was getting so close to the to the post and I thought if that was me I wouldn't make the save because I'm going to kill myself so let's just forget that one you know? <laughs> imagine the size of players running straight at you like I remember playing Sunday league and being put through on goal running seeing the keeper coming towards me and like I know this is going to end terribly <laughs> but I jumped to try and get a knock on the ball or something and the keeper was nowhere near it it completely wiped me out uh, it hurt a lot but I got a penalty out of it so I mean that guy's done the opposite way he's seen me running towards him and he's going I'm going to have to just go in hard here and so you're a little bit mad happening. too. Well, you've got to try. That's why JJ can't remember his own birthday anymore, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> um, slightly surprising to me on Saturday to see Newcastle so up for the game. Do we think that was great management from Rafa or do we think it was thanks to a day of hard drinking from their fans? I loved how Gary Neville described the crowd as bladdered <laughs> on Saturday, which uh, it, it, the atmosphere seemed great. Was he not saying that... Um, Managers in the last week of the season would uh, you can just let their players get bladdered if they want because well, he was saying the players were bladdered. No, that no, would it, be he was just saying that the last week story. of the season doesn't matter because there's nothing for them to play for, so they can just do whatever they want. But then he was impressed by how serious Newcastle were taking it. Rafa Benitez is a great manager. Like, that team's not particularly good, and they're performing. Like, they could easily finish top ten next season or something like that if they'd improve in a couple couple of positions. But how is he getting them fired up for that? I think tension and pressure is quite contagious in football. I think the fact that Liverpool came out and was so obviously wired and up for it, I think that naturally has a knock-on effect to the opposition where when the guy you're up against is running at you hard and breathing down your neck, you naturally respond to that physically. I mean, the best example of that was uh, Chris Stamble when when the 3-3. Palace had nothing to play for that day, but they went hell for leather to get back in that game and draw 3-3 and the crowd went mad for it because they knew it was significant and that, that... Emotion of the of the game filters into the opposition, even when that team has nothing to play for. I don't think. I don't know. I wonder whether it's just like teams wanting to have uh, their say on on the title race and Mm. being like, you know, this is our moment to shine. This is the moment that everyone's going to look at us and you know on TV and or we can demonstrate what kind of team we are, and that just kind of motivates you anyway. It's a little bit like Chelsea having the game of their lives against Spurs when Leicester were trying to win. Mm. Although obviously that has also a different type of rivalry there, but. 
it's interesting about how teams will go for things even when they've actually got nothing to, to win. Yeah, so the conventional wisdom is that the teams that to worry about are the ones who've got something to play for and are fighting for their lives. But actually, that's more pressure on them, isn't it? And you yeah. could argue that the best thing is to not have any pressure at all. Anyway, speaking of pressure, let's move on to Manchester City, who play Leicester on Monday night. Very little pressure on Leicester, of course. They won the reverse fixture against City. How did they do it that time, JJ? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was during City's really dodgy spell, wasn't it? I think, I mean, Claude Puel would often set them up to be really counter-attacking and the kind of basics you do against City is you sit back and you try and hit them on the break and you, you press high with a few players but you have it uh, a really deep line otherwise. Rodgers has Leicester playing in a different way and um, they have more of the ball now. I think they have, yeah, they have, well, they have more possession of the ball and they play far more passes now than they did under uh, Puel. But although Leicester, I heard a lot of people saying that they think Leicester are going to take something today. They've got a feeling about it. I think they're going to get, I mean, this is, I don't like predicting things. I'm always wrong, but I think they're going to get done. If you look when Rodgers came in, so they lost to Watford, who are a good team, so that's yeah, it's not bad. But they've only beaten Fulham, who everyone should beat. Burnley, who, yeah. uh, Bournemouth, in the middle of their terrible run. Huddersfield, worst team in the Premier League I've seen for quite a long time. <laughs> they lost. Uh, they they um they lost to Newcastle, who are team. You know that was a big game because Newcastle were trying to stay up. Then they drew with West Ham, not amazing. And they beat Arsenal, who were down to 10 minutes for 30 minutes. Well, that's one way to look at it. I would say Arsenal were the only big club they've played, and they've beaten them 3-0, so that should give them loads of hope. But yeah, but Arsenal, Crystal, and Arsenal have fallen apart. Crystal Palace moment. lost to like, a bunch of people as well. They can barely get themselves you know, motivated in certain matches, but they beat them. Yeah, um, I, th- I think the, the Leicester... So they seemed like really revved up after beating Arsenal, and they thought it was a really good result. But in context, it was 10 men, and Arsenal were just starting to fall apart. Like the pressure's really starting to tell on them or something. I don't know what's going on with Arsenal. I think Man City is the first proper, real, great team they've played since Rodgers has come in. And uh, I think if when City will go at them, and I don't know they'll be able to hold off. And I think I don't think it'll be a bogey team like they have been in the past tonight. I don't know. I mean... I know what you mean, though, because when I look at it, I think it's definitely going to be a Man City win. But I do think that they'll threaten them. And I don't know why I feel like Brendan Rodgers and the team will be a little more than Newcastle were, but really amped up to have their say in this match. And everyone's sort of being like, ooh, Leicester could get a point out of this. And they're going to be like, you know what, we can get a point out of this, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't know whether that's going to motivate them or just to have their say. I do like the fact that Brendan Rodgers is starting to implement that high-pressing game. And if he does that effectively and you're using the pace of the likes of Vardy, which always tends to, you know, direct play tends to really undo City. There could be a chance, but I mean, we know that City are going to probably really give the best. But that's it. If they're playing direct, that's not how Rodgers has them playing. So if if he set them up to try and beat um, Man City tonight and he's doing it in the counter-attack, it's not really how Rodgers has ever had his teams play, but they will have less of the ball. And you look at where City will win the midfield and Leicester's midfield is, they play like a 4-1-4-1, but they have two attacking midfielders as opposed to central ones. So they've got uh, Yuri Tillemans and uh, James Madison who play through the middle. Now, you think they'd have to put another midfielder in beside Ndidi today, which would be maybe Chowdhury. Um, he's good defensive, kind of makes a lot of tackles. So then that would change the way they play, the ch- change the shape a little bit and make them just more like a 4-2-3-1 like everyone kind of plays and City will just do them yeah, in. but you can keep possession but still be direct in the same that Barcelona was, you know, kept possession but, know, but Andres Iniesta and Messi be more direct. Sure, but that's just not how they'll, they'll play because if they shift the ball quickly to the wide guys, then... They've got maybe Damari Gray, but might play on the right, and then you might have Madison on, out on the left, but then he's not best out on the left. So if, to try and 
counter how good City are, you change what letter are good at in the first place. If he goes to that straight attacking team, it could be really interesting because then it would be, I'd like to see how they have a go at them. But City are just a better team with better players and I think they'll take them apart if they do that. So then that's why he'd go for a more defensive outlook but then they'd still get done. Yeah, it will be revealed on Monday night. Sam, would you be a bit fed up if you're a Man City fan? We, I very much included this podcast <laughs> in this, but everyone is focusing on Liverpool. If you looked at the papers on Saturday morning, loads of papers had a big Liverpool chunk in them. I'd, I think I'd feel a bit affronted if I was a Man City fan. Um, I think I'd accept that Liverpool are a better story, have been more entertaining, have been more... Uh, identifiable for the average fan in terms of... I mean, we just talked earlier about... I don't think you're putting yourself in a football fan mindset here, Sam. This is all far too reasonable. I mentioned earlier the, the nine big moments for Liverpool this season across all competitions in terms of, you know, dramatic equalisers or, or late winners or that, that, kind of, that kind of stirring goal or big tackle. Nine for Liverpool. I, can, I reckon if you're being really generous, you could say three for City this season. They've just not had those moments of great sort of passion... Uh, or any any sort of excitement, and they've just just been like a machine going on and on and on. And the fact that they obviously have won it last year, they're really good. They've paid loads of money for their players. I mean, and JJ, I know you're a big fan, and they because they are great and they play great football. But on a sort of narrative, emotional scale, they're just a different league to Liverpool right now. <laughs> and it's, you know, this this will be remembered as the year Liverpool don't win it. If it'll be it'll be known as the year Liverpool. They came so close and didn't make it. If they live, if they don't make what, it, what if Man City than, win the treble? You think they will look back on this year as the year that a team didn't do something? Yeah, I think this will be the scene as the year. Oh, that was the year Liverpool went really close to it, much like 2013-14. When people think of 2013-14, they think, oh, Rodgers, Suarez, Sterling, Sturridge, what a team that was. They don't think, oh yes, City were quite good that year with Yaya Torre scoring all those goals. They don't. The narrative is so centered on Liverpool because of the drama and the excitement of Liverpool and, and everything that surrounds that with history. Do you think, yeah, it's history, isn't it? Because I think it's a lot to do with how many fans Liverpool have and how many supporters they have because you have lots of, uh, I'll just call them glory hunters who live not from Liverpool who supported them back in the 80s. Um, you see them like there's heaps in London. There's loads I know up in Aberdeen. Um, but you don't get that with Man City. But that will surely will it, come in twenty years. Though, well, it? you'd think it would, but it, it feels more. I don't know. It's something that feels more authentic with Liverpool because they've got the grand traditional history and they've. It's a better story. Uh, well, maybe that's what it is. This but, year, it's a better story. But I, you know, just like it was exciting when City were trying to get the title and Balotelli came on and it was Mancini was the first title. You know, it's always exciting when it's the first title in a really t- long time or first ever or whatever it is. And the fact is, is that when you support a team, you sort of want it to be a boring team because you do, you want to be used to winning. You don't want it to be such an occasion every time that you come close or you want a challenge. It's always going to be more fun, much like City were, much like Leicester was or whatever it was when they were winning their titles. But now, for and it is exciting for Liverpool, but for City, if you just keep winning and you're playing really great football, it is going to just be a bit boring. Spoken like a true Juve fan. I know. (laughs) Nice to support a team you expect to win every week. Let's rattle through the rest of the Premier League now. Chelsea assured of their Champions League place with a win at home to Watford. Is this any sort of reprieve for Sarri or has he just burnt too many bridges? Now, he didn't come out for the lap of appreciation, as we have to call it now, but he was just stood by the dugout watching the players walk around looking solemn. I do take issue about this, like this whole culture thing surrounding Sarri because I just feel a little bit like we've turned around and been like, oh, well done to, you know, Oli uh, Solskjaer. 
well done to, you know, um, Emery for doing a great job with Arsenal. Look at them flying in the Europa League. I haven't said that for a while, Nina, I don't think. (laughs) But I do feel like this guy's gotten so much flag, you know, and right now he's overtaken the great Pochettino, who is, and even I agree, is a genius, you know. And despite all the terrible football, the presence of Jorginho, which really seems to irk so many, the fact that Kante hasn't been playing as a defensive midfielder, they got into the Champions League. They've guaranteed it without a great striker. They've guaranteed it despite the fact that they're relying on basically Eden Hazard to pull them through. But despite all of that, and I know that everyone loves to see fantastic play, he's gotten the points that he needs to get. And I don't know why he is such a hated figure. I don't know whether he just doesn't appeal to anyone. I've never particularly loved him in Italy because of of different reasons. I don't like people who have philosophies, but you know we'll get back to that. But that's one of the reasons Aristotle. why. Aristotle. <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> Actually, I take issue with Plato more, but I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm more into pragmatism. But the fact is, <laughs> stop laughing. But the fact is, is for me, like you know, everyone. Quite, it's really bizarre because we know he has a philosophy of football. We know that Chelsea are built for a pragmatist because it's not a team that has great harmony in the way that they play their football or individuals that necessarily should coexist. And yet, despite all that, he's done a great job. And look how much even the likes of Guardiola suffered in his first season in City as he's tried to put together a philosophy and a style of play and teach all his players to do what they're supposed to do and motivate them at the same time. So Sadi just needs a little bit of time to implement this boring whatever you want it, but it's his style of football. Either way, that's what they bought into and that's what they wanted from him when they brought him in. And he still managed to do something special despite not having a striker, despite Iguain coming midway through, despite all the problems with Kepa, despite all the booing from the crowd. And I think he's done a better job than what Emery has done. Well, unless they obviously win the you know Europa League. But then also Chelsea have managed it on two fronts. So I don't know. I, I don't get why everyone hates him so much. Yeah, fair point. All sorts of nonsense going on beneath Chelsea in the Premier League table. Spurs, Arsenal, Man United, pretty dreadful weekends for all three of them. Just a remarkable joint implosion from teams all supposed to be chasing the Champions League. Um, Let's start with Spurs. Two men sent off, including Sonny, uh, in a defeat to Bournemouth. It's all looking very Spursy at this point, isn't it, JJ? (laughs) Uh, They've got the Champions League. I think they knew they were going to finish in Champions Champions League sports, so they're okay. Uh, As we've said a couple of times in the last few weeks, that... They just maybe run out of steam and their squad's too small. The, the thing that made me laugh over the weekend was, I mean, the, I mean, Dyer was incredibly fortunate not to be sent off himself. It could have been oh, three yeah. Minutes it should off. be sent off about three it's, times, yeah. You know, like, if you've had a week where, like, your body clocks off and you just haven't slept well enough and you're yeah. just really, like, really narky. I think Do that's I? what's the Spurs. They're all just, like, so tired at this point because the squad's not big enough that they're furious. Yeah, it's, it was weird seeing Sun react as well. He, oh, he, proper, I loved it. He's got a bump early on. Proper um, wind-up job by Jefferson Lerner. Oh, really? Yeah. You've done. You've done well when you've got Son angry. Yeah. <laughs> he's properly nailed him. I think he's. Yeah, I think he. I think he did. He stand on him, or did he sort of? He punched he, him a bit in the back. Didn't he, he? he ran straight into him like a not a clothesline, but he just blocked him and I think yeah. put, knocked the wind out of him earlier. And the he, referee didn't do anything about it. He very much knew what he was doing. There was, there was a few niggly bits, and then Son just lost his rag. I thought that was a masterful wind-up job by, I think it's uh, funny when teams <laughs> fall apart like that when their heads go and they start getting sent off and you think just get another one sent off it's funny go on well, I, suppose I, got I feel like I'd react it? the same way though if someone did that to me 
I'm a bit of an angry person, so I really enjoyed Son. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they were similar to the um, the meltdown at Stamford Bridge a few years ago, mm. the one that obviously won less of the league. Just the fact that it was a collective sort of heads gone. <laughs> I love how they brought on Foyth to be like, okay, we can't, we can't, we just can't miss down here. <laughs> Four minutes later, Foyth plant his knee on, plant his stud on someone's knee, just outstanding. What about Arsenal and Manchester United? You were at Arsenal on Saturday, Sam, uh, Sunday even. Mm. What what's going on with them? I think they're just a bit shattered, to be honest. I think it just seems like they've really run out of run out of steam, and they they knew from the moment they lost at home to Crystal Palace at the edit over Easter weekend, which was just an awful result. Um, that's the one that really cost them. After that result, I think they knew it was top four wasn't going to happen, um, despite Chelsea and Spurs' best attempts to blur up themselves. But they knew then it was always going to be an uphill battle. Um, and I think since then they've sort of, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, have focused their minds on the Europa League. They know what they need to do which is protect a 3-1 lead this week and then go to Baku and win and that's going to be their last chance of fulfilling their be-all and end-all goal this season um, I think they'll be fine in Valencia this week I think they were quite good in the second half in terms of controlling the game on Thursday night in the first leg um, they do look they look a bit tired but they've got Aubameyang and Lacazette up front who are still banging in the goals and there's always going to be a threat in that sense so all uh, all eyes on Baku and uh, the Europa League, all the big one. to Baku. Czech and Ramsey saying goodbye on the pitch afterwards, but not many Arsenal fans there to say goodbye back to them. No, I reckon about 20% of the stadium remained And this for is that. why he's going to Juventus. <laughs> <laughs> that and financial reasons. Um, <laughs> they also said goodbye, goodbye to Danny Welbeck, um, ah. which, I mean, we, we, we knew was he wasn't getting offered a new contract and therefore he was leaving, but there's been no sort of club communication or um you know i mean for example ramsey got a big you know here's all his achievements kind of video and checks had loads of tweets and all this stuff about support whereas welbeck just been sort of ignored pretty much and, oh yeah welbeck's still here and oh yeah he's going so bye <laughs> that was sort of it which felt a bit um cold and then we asked emery about it afterwards and he just said so danny's definitely going then and all emery would say was yeah i've spoken to the club and he's leaving Great, well, there you a go. A fitting tribute there to Welbeck's commitment to, the, to his years at the Emirates, yeah. Manchester United can only draw at Huddersfield, JJ. The attitude on Monday morning seems to be just burn it all down. Uh, <laughs> friend of producer yeah. Joel Grove, Chris Sutton, said that they should uh, start building around Pogba for next season. Where do you stand? How, how should they renew things? And take summer? it back what you said about Huddersfield. They got a point against United. Yeah, it was a great assist in the goalkeeper as well. Punt over the top. Uh, Man United took horrible. And I agree with everyone who's been saying that the players switched off as soon as Solskjaer got the job. I think Solskjaer will do well there. They have to obviously uh, get their signings very correct. If you look at the amount of money they spent um, in the last couple of years and how much they must have available now because they're so rich, to sell the ones you don't need, get rid of Sanchez, put him literally in a bin and just let it roll down a hill... <laughs> And then you've got... Oh my God. <laughs> what sort of bin? A wheelie bin. So like a, bin. a large one, a comfortable one, I or just, just any standard recycling any, tool one? Any bin. Wheelie bins fine. don't roll very well because they're more angular. Well... I think with the weight you can, inside. You can go down a hill in the wheelie bin. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Someone went to university in Scotland. Anyway, uh, you can... Um, if, if you're in charge of the air, they've got the money... If they went out and bought, this is like my dream signing for Man United, go and buy Ruben Neves and N'Golo Kante from Chelsea or find players who have similar stats to them who are just there and buy them, just those two, and straight away you improve that team incredibly and you've got support in midfield to protect the defence. And defending's not done by individual players, it's done by a unit. They're going to have to buy probably a centre-back. Imagine they get De Ligt as well. There's possible that you could get him. 
that would just be three amazing signings. It would cost them probably about 80 million for each one, but they've got money. Sell Lukaku for 50, you know, shipping another one. They could probably do something like that. I did an exercise earlier because this is the kind of person I am, where I did a composite 11 uh, of Wolves and Manu and Leicester and Manu. And I, admittedly, I was sort of. I've done this too, Sam, weirdly. <laughs> admittedly, I was maybe pushing it a little bit, but I've got seven Wolves players in your 11 and seven Leicester players in your 11. So I've only put four. Uh, man for man at the moment. I mean, obviously, they're all playing below themselves, but man for man, man, you aren't that much better than the teams finishing a few places below them. I mean, if I was them, I'd be genuinely concerned that next year like, oh, Wolves oh, wait, and Leicester on, might be better than them. Who's that? Like, let's look at the teams that how many people would want these certain players. Like, there's Paul Pogba. I think Ante Herrera is a good player. Yeah, he's going, he's going though, isn't he? Um, Martial mm. you, no one rates him I, I, I think it, you can tell from the way he's not getting in the team and the amount of managers who just haven't been able to get anything out of him that he must not be a great influence right okay, now I was like thrown to the wolves when I said that Lukaku was a little bit you know not great yeah um, but I mean everyone kept saying to me he's, you know, he scores all these goals you know what about Rashford he's one of the best young players in Europe I think he's amazing okay so then Juan Mata you wouldn't take him if you were, I don't know, Leicester? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Over James Madison and Tielemans? No. No, they're, they're, sort of, they're not done, but Luke they're just Shaw? not good enough. I mean, Shaw's fine, but look, Ben Chilwell's a better player yeah. than Luke Shaw, like Great. by far. And you just, they've just, they, they've been run down, but they've been run really badly. The players there are not um, the kind of characters you want for a, a club that's going to win a title, get even anywhere near it. They need to buy world talents you can't really buy more than two or three players in the transfer window and expect to have any continuity or or keep developing if you buy any more than that you just a, you turn into what Spurs did when they sold Bale and bought a bunch of stuff that you don't need Liverpool with Suarez yeah exactly yeah. Look, I understand what you're saying about all this and I do think that on, on many levels they didn't necessarily get the best players but I do also think that there's an occasion in which they didn't actually buy the right players with the right attitude because I really mm-hmm. feel like for example Martial to me is one of the most talented players I've ever seen play the game he's brilliant yeah and unfortunately for him he or, or for rather for United he doesn't have the right attitude it seems um, Alexis Sanchez feels like with that paycheck he's arrived perhaps not giving everything and a little bit like a Mesut Ozil I don't know but I also have to say despite all of this and I'm not here to be like you know we saw that Mourinho suffered problems Solskjaer's suffering the same problems but there is also this type of for me coaching issues that I am taking you know you look at that team and you look at the fact that when the defenders have the ball and they're looking for the out ball there is nobody there's no movement there's no no one coming in to receive there's there's few outlets for a pass and I don't know when you look at all the heat maps under Mourinho as well it was like the three midfielders would all basically occupy the same spaces yeah I don't think it's coaching I think it's just literally players not doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're not putting in the extra effort you can see it just when like certain players at the bottom of the league if they lose the ball they sprint they work really hard to get it back when Tyath Chong came on against Huddersfield he was he he looked like a different kind of player because he was working really hard off the ball trying to win it back and they just don't really have that desire. It's like they just know, ah, we're here, we're fine. I think a lot of players, when you sign for Man U, that's the peak of your career. You sign for Man U, not realising that that's actually like the start of where you have to then work really hard to get really good. But then you don't, not, we shouldn't blame any coach for not being able to get something out of these guys. To so at least get out them to them and then they stop playing. You can just, you just see it. It's a lack of effort. And then effort doesn't mean having to be like running and tackling, but just moving into positions to be in the right place. They're just so slow on the ball. They were walking with it against Huddersfield. They just walk in and they're, they're drawing and they have to try and get a win to get in the Champions League. And, you, and it's just not, you can't have that. You, can, you have to work harder than everyone else if you're going to win. 
Like Liverpool works so hard off the ball and mm. on and with it. They're so quick. Man City, exactly the same. Wolves, all of these, a lot of these yeah. teams work really hard to get where they are. But I, I don't know. I can't help but think it's just what? It's just a really bad psychology within that dressing room? Yeah, there's something yeah. rotten that runs through the entire club, it's isn't it? It's a culture shit. It's the culture that's wrong there. And they need to send players who can change that. Finally, we said goodbye to Cardiff City at the weekend, but Neil Warnock left us with a reaction gift to remember him with squaring up to the camera like Liam Gallagher in his pomp. Has your opinion of Neil Warnock changed this season, JJ? We've said many times that you described Cardiff as a pub team and you weren't all that uh, keen on him, but has he done anything this season to change what you think of him? Nah. Okay. (laughs) um, I love him. I love him so much. I wasn't there. The, the 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 reason for that you know he was leaning up and forward into the camera yeah I think that was him trying to be all sort of sarcastically get out of my face yeah the, these cameras it's something you realise I've seen a few times they get really really close I remember yeah. being at an England on twenty one game recently and Eddie Boothroy had a camera really really right up in his it's like uncomfortably close like even from looking at it from afar so I feel like uh, Warnock was giving as good as he got kind of thing yeah well within his rights there. The inside story behind the GIF. <laughs> You're listening to the Telegraph Audio Football Club, part of the Telegraph Podcasting Network. To find more of our podcasts, just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Let's talk about the Football League. We have our two new Premier League teams for next year in Norwich City and Sheffield United. And four in the playoffs, Leeds, Villa, West Brom, and Derby, who do we think will win the playoffs and who would you most like to see in the Premier League next year? Oh, we want Leeds. Surely we all want Leeds in the Premier League with Bielsa and everything about them. No? You're, you're, giving, you're, you're turning your nose up as if you've smelled something. Oh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't room. mind Leeds, but I would be reluctant to say, like, yes, we all want the Leeds. As, as a nation, we want Leeds. And so <laughs> I think there's still quite a lot of people out there who aren't that keen on Leeds. Tom uh, likes to go against the green. <laughs> <laughs> I would like Leeds purely because I think they're ones who could uh, go on to do something good or special because Bielsa is, well, he's one of the most influential managers of all time. Like every, everyone talks about how he's mm. influenced them. But... Um, if you put something like Villa, West Brom or Derby, you know that all that's going to happen is they're going to end up finishing 12th and then they finish 15th and they're relegated after that. They never go anywhere else. I really want Derby. Do you? It's just such a middling existence. It must be so much more fun supporting them in the Championship. I know we talked about this a few times. But you can actually win games and enjoy it if you're in the lower league there. But if you have a manager of the class and history of Bielsa and you've got some money behind it and you can assemble a squad, they could do something quite decent if they went up one team looking forward to fun in the championship next season will be Luton Town can we think of a bigger achievement than Mick Harford in caretaker charge this year in uh, in English football um, that's definitely up I mean, back to back promotions Nathan Jones left went to Stoke and that was obviously a big I mean the, the players themselves have said that they thought that might be a, a turning point when he left and then Mick Harford's come in and in his own words not done anything differently and he's very much trying to say the strange strange thing that he said from the start I don't want this job I'm not doing it beyond the end of the season and he's seemingly not not moving on that it's it's, it's quite odd how he's so insistent that it's nothing to do with him when he's been the manager and the players are all saying that Mick's made a massive difference (laughs) but but, um, I think that's sort of the nature of who who he is really everyone around him he's a very overtly modest guy I imagine almost infuriatingly modest with this (laughs) season but um, but, yeah no back to back promotions that's um, and then they've got a new stadium on the way as well. It feels like the mood at Luton is very much on the up. And I think that's quite like they're, they're, they're proper club Luton. It'd be good to see them doing well. Lincoln uh, winning League Two is really impressive for Danny Cowley because they had that FA Cup run that kind of put them in the... Him and his brother are both the mm-hmm. managers. Well, he's the manager, but his brother's assistant. Put them in the in the news. But they've uh, 
those boys are clearly really talented, especially Danny Cowley. So to, to win that with Lincoln, I think he's coming in and they've constantly improved and he's dead young. He could well be... Uh, do you think if a Premier League team needs uh, <laughs> needs someone who can... The way that Huddersfield signed the Dortmund uh, reserve manager, they could look down to examples lower in the leagues and you've got Cowley doing what he's done with Lincoln and you have to think that's the kind of manager who's showing that they have potential to be something special. So in the same way you give uh, young players a go... You should look at these kind of managers too. Waving a sad goodbye from Notts County from league football, relegated out of the top four divisions for the first time in their 157-year history. Juventus even based their kit on Notts County's, meaning you personally must be taking this very hard. I know, I cried all night. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is the first I've heard of it. (laughs) What about Leighton Orient? They're back in the Football League. They'll be joined by uh, one of the new money sides, Fylde or Salford City, Reasons to believe that both of those will be okay next season in League Two. T- tends to be all right, doesn't it, coming up from the National League into League Two? Those teams generally sort of ride the crest of the wave. Clearly, the gap's not quite as uh, as big as the whole professional, non professional, traditional divide is there. Um, Leighton Orient, interesting. I think Leighton Orient have got the most um, highest proportion of journalist fans <laughs> than, uh, than any other club who aren't in the Premier League, I would think. League I feel Edwards. like every journalist in the country supports Leighton Orient and they're always <laughs> tweeting about them. Lou Hedwards being one of them, but there's more than just Lou. I feel like there's quite a few of them. Let's turn our attention into Europe and the Champions League semi-finals. Liverpool, 3-0 down at half-time in the tie. Do they have any hope at home to Barcelona? Surely not with Sturridge and Origi potentially leading the line for them with Salah and Firmino out. Yeah, I think you've basically just answered your own question. <laughs> Bad hosting. Uh, I mean... Do you think Salah will not come back? Who knows? If it's a head in, there's a protocol that's got to be a week or something between games if it is concussion to be suffered. But I'd imagine they'd, I, mean, I can't actually say this because that would be uh, dangerous to say that they'd want to try and hide it if you had to have it so they could well, play it. Wouldn't, it, so. it wouldn't be beyond the realms of what you would mm. expect from football, would it? Well, yeah, exactly. It's not really taken particularly seriously. It'd be good to explore the option of having temporary subs that come on if they have concussion injuries. Um, I, th- I would imagine that they're going to have a lot of passionate, uh, energetic Liverpool attacks here, but Barca are so classy, I can't see them... All they need is one counter-attack yeah. to get one goal, and that's them done. Yeah. You could, I could see Liverpool scoring three, but I can't see Liverpool keeping a clean sheet, I think is the mm. problem. I think they'll get it close, but not over the line. It's just the level of technique in, in, in Barcelona. It's like they don't even need to dominate the game. They don't need anything, really. They just need sort of about three chances, and they probably get you two goals. Yeah, flawless technique under pressure. That's what those great players do. Mm. They, they don't... They don't hook the ball forward chasing it. They just keep going the same way all the way through. First touch is always perfect. Yeah, you never look at them and think, oh, they've squandered their chances, you know, like <laughs> hugely. They're, they, I mean, although actually they missed two at the end, you know, Dembele had a good chance, but he's out for this match. But yeah. What about Spurs? I mean, they're going to Amsterdam to play Ajax on Wednesday. They've got to go for it this time, haven't they? They seem to try to sit back in the opening 25 minutes or so in the first leg, and that really didn't go well for them. Yeah, weirdly enough for Ajax, it seems like they're better away from home than they are actually mm. at home. Uh, they lost to Real Madrid at home and they drew to Juventus, but the, you know it's the way matches that they managed to do their best. The thing is, is, I feel a little bit sorry for Spurs because I just, you know, looking at that first match, you just thought, oh, what a difference it would have made had they had Son or had they had Kane or had they had even Lamella. You know, I, I do... I, Sam always like you always throw me off with your nodding no, and not nodding. Um, um, but I don't know. I just feel like I, I do think that the, the presence of him will be huge for them in the sense of causing uh, direct 
problems and he's so fast and gets into the right positions that they need him to get into to just introduce pace, to introduce that little bit of directability. It's strange with Ajax because I know they're good. They just won their first trophy um, over the weekend, obviously. Um, and they are a sensational side. But I also think that they don't necessarily make the best decisions in the final third. Uh, you know, that final pass isn't always great. They take way too many shots. They know how to control possession, but you know how to, you should be able to know how to counter that game. And I don't know whether right now they have the squad that's fit enough to face them, but you really have to go gung-ho because what have they got to lose? Yeah, Sonny will be back for this one. He'll make a big difference, won't he? Um, Spurs are going to do it. No. I think I, so too. I think going to win the whole thing. I have a weird feeling. Spurs. Do you? Spurs looked uh, at their best against Ajax in the first leg when they went long and they basically hit Lorente from deep and Sissoko came on and started charging down second balls and they really sort of ruffled Ajax's feathers the most doing that. I wouldn't say Ajax were ever particularly ruffled. In the first half an hour, Spurs tried to play more like Spurs before Sissoko came on and they got thoroughly pumped. Ajax were just miles better um, at what they were doing than what Spurs were doing. Um, And obviously Son being the kind of player he is, facilitates a more uh, technical, measured build-up play and, or, you know, more technical approach rather than just lumping it to Llorente. And I just feel that, having watched that game last week, that lumping it to Llorente was the, the bit when it, I suppose, it the most dangerous. So I think totally the opposite. I thought exactly the opposite of mm, what you said. I, so I, I agree. When, yeah. they were, when they were humping it long, I thought it was absolutely useless and it's exactly how Ajax would win the game because they have control of the game because they are better with the ball. So by seeding possession, because they weren't really getting winning second balls and being able to push up, they were knocking it long, not being able to chase up. Ajax were winning it and they controlled the game. When Sissoko came on and they stopped hitting it, like punting it up the pitch, they were way better and Ajax couldn't get hold of the hold of the game. And it was the tactical change that they said. The guy after I think Von de Beek said afterwards that it was the tactical change from Spurs that then switched the the game to them because they couldn't then play exactly the same way. They had complete control of it. And Sun will make a huge difference because they've got actual pace when they can counter, so they can finally play the way they want. But I don't think they'll be quite as direct. I think they'll play just like Spurs do, just really solid, narrow, punting right through the middle without knocking it long. They'll just hit direct passes without launching it, if that makes sense. I mean, when when we were doing our studies as to how there's a potential that we can defeat Ajax, you know, for Juventus, it was always, they are very weak when it comes to crosses um, and, and you need to just move in the area that it seems to really get them because they don't actually, they're not a properly assembled defensive team other than De Ligt. Um, there are a lot there who, who, I don't know, you can't say are pure defenders really. So looking at that, I think that's one way to get them. I, I think also set pieces. They need to really make the most of their set pieces because I thought Ajax were terrible at defending them. Um, I, I think there's a really good chance if they study for this and, and prepare well, there's a really good chance for Son in the team. I'm basing it purely on um, playing so much football manager that when you tend to get a good little team together and you get towards the end of the season and you're going to finish Champions League spots, that's when you tend to win the Champions League. Oh. Yeah, that's why I've got a feeling I'm about Spurs. Just, I just <laughs> haven't been there for that first half an hour. I'm 33. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for the penultimate time this season, let us hear a song for Europe from Mina Rizuki. Mina, your beloved Juventus came close to home defeat in the Turin derby. I know. What's that rivalry like? Is there much hatred from Juve fans to Torino? Presumably Torino fans don't like Juve very much. 
Actually, no, there isn't that much. I mean, obviously, it's a derby and there is always going to be a bit of a hatred and some insults. But it's just it's one of those cities where everyone just seems to be a little bit aristocratic, you know, and everyone is very well behaved. Uh, there isn't any madness in that city. And for very long, it's been as the, I guess the capital city of Italian football. And in many sense, if you count the number of points and the wins and on titles and whatever, it's actually the capital city when it comes to football in Europe because Grande Torino was so huge. And obviously so have Juventus have been in, in, in the years after that. But it, there just doesn't seem to be that much hatred. It's always quite respectful. Um, there's, you know, there's oh, was a wonderful banner because the Superga tragedy, which is obviously Grande Torino, suffered. Um, it was the 70th anniversary the day after. So there was a huge banner in dedication to all the victims that obviously passed away in that from the Juventus fans. There was one guy who was caught on camera saying some terrible things, but he was identified and, and, and Juventus have banned him from ever going to a match again. So, which goes to show that you can do that, which is something they need to implement when it comes to racism as well. Um, but yeah, I just I just feel like it's kind of a little bit of a non-rivalry. All a bit too civilised. What about in Spain, Mina? Uh, we talked about pronunciation for this before the show. Uh, mm. I believe it's Getafe. It is indeed Getafe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how do you really pronounce it? Getafe. Getafe, lovely. <laughs> they are fourth in La Liga. Champions League on for them at the moment. That would be an incredible achievement. How have they done it? Oh, they they have this coach who I cannot explain to you. Like you know, you know when we talk about these crazy coaches, his name is Jose Bordalas, and he's sort of like a journeyman. Came up with the team, you know. He's insane, as in like, as in proper like sits there and whips his players. You know, he has this <laughs> like, not literally, surely <laughs> not literally, but there is actually a great story in which he puts a pencil in between the nose and the mouth of one of the defenders and, and gets him to cross his eyes so that he can look as crazy as possible to scare the opponent. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, he'll have any What's... trick possible. Yeah, so it's like, you know, I want you to look as mad as possible. There's there's Sidler some, recounts some great stories because he's interviewed a lot of these players. But it's basically like he'll pester them around the pitch. Uh, yeah, look, Sam's doing it right now. Basically, he makes them keep that phase. So when they're playing a striker, the striker will continue to look at them and get distracted. You see, this is the amazingness of, of Bordelas. And he, That's next he, level. Like he that. chases them around their pitch. He annoys them. He yells abuse at them so that they're constantly focused on only their task. And he's got a wonderful fitness coach in, um, in Javier Vidal, who's a little bit like Ortega for Atletico Madrid, keeps all his players in line. Um, and they just fight for him. They're motivated. They're interested. And what's really amazing about this is we took, talk about the kids of, of Ajax and we say this is the way forward. Their forward three guy, their forward line is basically guys over 30 years old. Um, they don't have a set def- defined, you know, this, they're aggressive. They're great in transitions. We can talk about the way that they play the game. But really what it is, is these guys are willing to die for their coach. And they have a fitness coach that's fantastic and always along the along with them as well. And... I think when you think about that and you think of the likes of they have Jaime Mata, who is a journeyman in, in, in the greatest sense, but who's just been amazing for them this season and a team that's willing to do anything for each other, then that's all you need. We've also got Mathieu Flamini, oh. a.k.a. biochemicals entrepreneur Mathieu Flamini. The world's greatest midfielder. Mm. <laughs> and scientist. <laughs> <laughs> As Dr. Flamini to you. Finally, Fulham brought on Harvey Elliott in the 88th minute of their game against Wolves this weekend. He was born on the 4th of April, 2003, which was five months before I started university. 
utterly terrifying. My question to you always, what in football makes you feel old? We asked our friends on Twitter. A fellow Tom with an H says, not Tom York, Lampard and Gerrard moving into management. I thought years of football manager would prepare me for player to manager transition, but they're still only just breaking into the first team, aren't they? Fair point, Sam. What in football makes you feel old? Wait, hold on. Before all of this, did you say five years before you went to university? Five months before I went to university. Right, okay. Uh, mine was a, a moment in a mix zone at Wembley uh, at the start of last season when we were talking to Marcus Rashford after he'd scored for England and we asked him what was your first memory of England at a World Cup and he said the Germany defeat in 2010. Oh, 2010! Oh my god! So yeah, that's, that's how young Marcus Rashford is. But I also think that's quite telling because he would have been about 12, 13 at that time. So what was he doing age eight in 2006? I don't know. He doesn't want it enough. But, doesn't want it enough, I know. But uh, yeah, that, that felt particularly... Eye-opening. What's me. yours, Mina? Uh, my favourite World Cup was 924, and obviously it was famous for Romario and Bebeto and that, you know, that celebration they had with the baby. The fact that that baby is now playing football <laughs> is, is really oh, upsetting wow. to me. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, now that he's what, like, how old is he now? He's 19, I think. Sure. No, he's well over 25. 19 now. 25, yeah. I mean, I mean, now he's almost too old <laughs> for Ajax. He would have been thrown out by now. <laughs> so that's when you start realizing to yourself that what's happened. Yeah. How old thing. am I? Yeah, we won't reveal that. JJ, what's your uh, thing that makes you feel old? Well, I always thought it would be when Michael Owen retired, but then it didn't really feel that old when he retired. What I did find really weird was when I went to interview Derek McInnes, who's the Aberdeen manager. I did it last year. I, was, I think it was well, I mean, 32 then. And I realised as I stepped in that I am older than all his outfield players. Mm. Mm. And uh, that's weird because I don't feel like I'm that old. I still feel like I'm you know, 21, 22. I guess most people are probably the same thing. Mm. But that's really odd. And it is a, give me a little like jolt thinking that some people are just born to be these kind of uh, natural footballers or leaders. Some people are just like that. That's the way they are conditioned or the way they naturally are. And uh, it was not me. So I was never going to be able to captain Aberdeen. <laughs> Alas, Tom. Alas. What about you? Yeah. Well, I I think I've re- I think I've revealed this already on the podcast this year. But I always get a shirt, uh, a QPR shirt each season, almost every season. I always get someone's name and number printed on the back because, like JJ, I'm a child. <laughs> but uh, this year I have Darnell Furlong's name on my back, and I realised I he's the first QPR player whose father I've also had printed on my back at some point. <gasps> His father's Paul Furlong, who was brilliant for QPR, and his son Darnell is now playing for us. So, circle of life. Have you got these all in one place in the house? Can you imagine if you have his kid in the future? Oh, the th- I mean, oh. I've, I've got to stop wearing football shirts within the next sort of 15 <laughs> years, I think. I've got, I mean, any older than, I don't know, what's the cutoff, 50? I don't know. It is weird that you can just shout at footballers. No matter how old you get, you're still shouting at footballers as though you're, they're your heroes. Like, it's, cause that's a, I remember when um, Paul Hayward wrote a thing about Lionel Messi. Mm. It was beautiful. And Messi um, gave him a... Uh, I think he's, he signed something. Yeah, he sent him a shirt. Yeah, it was really a really nice gesture. But even seeing like Paul Hayward, obviously like a brilliant writer, and you have him talking about Messi as though it's a, a hero, I'd like that. It's quite special. That never goes away. <laughs> yeah. It's quite different if you support QPR when Darnell Furlong is here. I mean, I'd be delighted to meet Darren Matthews. <laughs> That's your lot for this Monday show. We'll see you same time next week and also tomorrow. What a treat. You can contact me on Twitter if you'd like to. As ever, it's at Tom with an H Gibbs. The email address, afcpodcast.telegraph.co.uk. We will read out the best of what you send us. Don't forget to subscribe to get all of this week's shows. 
It's Telegraph Audio Football Club. Put those words into your computer, mobile device or tablet and take it from there. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.